You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Thank you all for, for attending and welcome to our offices. Welcome also to everyone who is watching online as part of our Knowledge Insight series. It's clear from the number in the room and from the number that are, are joining us online that this is a topic that resonates across all sectors. In preparing for the seminar, we're, we're conscious of the fact that there is in the market, there's been a lot of noise, there's been a lot of material circulating in relation to this topic, but a lot of it is outward focused. It's focused more on customer data, client data, and those aspects of GDPR, which obviously are incredibly important. But also, there seems to be a much less being said about what's actually happening internally in terms of what people need to do to get their, their own house in order. So very much sort of inward looking as opposed to outward facing. So really, the, the purpose of the seminar this morning is really to focus on those areas and to get a sense of the issues that we are getting, certainly on, on the employment side, in, in terms of the, the queries we're receiving from clients, from in-house counsel, from uh, people in HR, and really around the same areas of what do I need to do and what do I need to know insofar as GDPR is concerned. So to introduce myself, I'm a partner in the employment team here at Matheson, uh, and my colleagues here, Anne-Marie Bowen, who's the head of our technology and innovation group and is a, a guru for all things data protection related and Russell Rochford, a partner uh, also in our, in our employment team. So really, what we're going to do today is, Anne-Marie, first of all, is just going to give a, a brief overview, I suppose, of the legal basis of GDPR and, and what it means on, on the legal side of it. And we'll use that as a jump-off point, really, to set out a number of questions from an employer's perspective. And these are questions that uh, certainly um, myself, Russell, and, and really everybody in our team these are the questions that we are fielding on a day-to-day basis and largely liaising with uh, Anne-Marie and her team to try and give an answer to in terms of what GDPR actually means within a, a HR context. So we will, we'll, we'll go through a series of, of those types of questions. So first of all, Anne-Marie, if you could uh, bring us through, I suppose, the, the legal side of things. Thanks, Niall. Um, you have to excuse my voice, I'm a bit croaky been doing far too much talking about gdpr what i'm going to do is is really just sort of set the framework so this is a very high level run through of the main principles of gdpr but it should give a framework for the discussion that we're going to have later on and and, and you know prompt questions potentially in your minds as well um in relation to hr and where gdpr fits into that so fundamentally what we're talking about is personal data so worth taking a step back and, and kind of thinking about well what what exactly is in scope so it is a very broad definition it is any information relating to an identified or identifiable natural person and i've put the word living in there because there are some member states that are actually extending this to deceased persons as well ireland hasn't opted to do that but in terms of you know information from which people are indirectly identifiable it includes a broad range of data so bear in mind that from a HR perspective, some of this data may not necessarily be sitting on your HR files. It may actually be elsewhere within the organization and on other systems. So we're talking about things like location data, online identifiers, things, you know, if there are specific features relating to someone's physical or genetic or economic or, or cultural or social identity that you record somehow within, within your systems, all of that is going to be personal data relating to a living individual. And I think that relating to is an important point to bear in mind um, it, it, because not every mention of someone is going to be personal data relating to them. And, and that becomes important when you're talking about things like data access requests, which I think we, we'll touch on in more detail later. Couple of the key principles and fundamental themes that run through GDPR and that have to then be taken into account when you are managing HR data and personnel data. So this idea of privacy by design and by default, the whole idea that you start off with the concept that all of this personal information has to be kept secure, it has to be kept confidential. So how do you build out your systems and how do you build out your policies and procedures with that at the core of what you're doing? you have to comply with the fundamental data quality principles. And they are 
you know, essentially boil down to making sure that what you collect and why you collect it is lawful, fair and transparent. So do people understand what's happening? That you only use it for the purposes that you said you were going to use it for. That you don't keep more data than is necessary for those purposes. So there's, there's a lot around GDPR and around data protection that, that is really about this idea of data minimization. It, it, it's, it's curtailing your use of data, but also the amount of data that, that you hold. You have to keep it up to date where necessary and make sure that the data is accurate. You can't keep it or you shouldn't keep it in a manner from which people are identifiable for longer than is necessary for the purpose. So you need to think about things like, well, you know, can we anonymize some of this data over time? What do we have to keep and what are our statutory obligations in relation to keeping it? And, and do we have to distinguish between different types of data and different categories of data and have different storage periods? And then fundamentally and, and really key again, links back to by design and by default is this idea of integrity and confidentiality. And that really boils down to security, not just technical security, but um, organizational security measures as well. And part of the reason this is all so important is that GDPR in effect flips the burden of proof in terms of um, compliance with data protection rules. So there is, is a, a principle of demonstrable compliance by both data controllers and data processors in the context of GDPR. So you need to be able to show that you have met these standards. And that links into the requirement, you know, going forward to have more and clearer policies and procedures around data protection. On top of those data quality principles, you also need to make sure that you meet one of the lawful processing grounds. So you can only process personal data if and to the extent it meets one of these. Um, for non-special category or non-sensitive data, those uh, grounds and then the most relevant ones are going to be consent, performance of a contract, which is your employment contract, compliance with the legal obligation, so any statutory obligations on employers. There are a couple of others, you know, things like protection of vital interests of a data subject, um, quite a civil law concept, hasn't really been tested here, um, but, you know, is another lawful processing ground. Um, and then legitimate interests of the controller. Again, it's, it's a ground that very often controllers need to rely on, but it has to be balanced by the countervailing rights and, and interests of the data subject or the employee in this instance. For special categories of data, um, and these are things like, you know, racial or ethnic origin, health information, biometric information, um, you know, people are getting more sophisticated in terms of security, so that, that may come in, um, sexual orientation, religious, philosophical beliefs, trade union membership, all kinds of data that actually in a HR context you may well hold. If you do hold and process that type of information, the lawful processing grounds are actually more narrowly drawn and more specific than they are for non-special category data. So if you have to rely on consent, you're talking about explicit consent. Usefully, there is provision for processing of those special category grounds in an employment context where you're complying with an obligation or exercising a specific right under employment or social security or social protection law. So again, th th there will be statutory obligations that employers have where you need to process some of this information and that will be lawful. Transparency then, and this, this is getting a lot of focus in relation to GDPR, and it is something that the Data Protection Commissioner has publicly said is going to be something that they are going to focus on as well. And that is making sure that individuals understand what data you have, why you have it and what you're doing with it. And that that's really what it boils down to. There's already an obligation to provide information to individuals, and, uh, and this does include your employees. But the list of information that you have to give is longer and you have to give more detailed information. So you don't only have to tell people why you have their information and what what you're doing with it you have to tell them the lawful basis upon which you're processing it. So if you go back to those lawful processing grounds, you need to have identified which one you're relying on in relation to specific processing activities. You also need to tell them about retention periods. You also need to tell them about all of their various rights, and, and, and we'll touch on those as well. Those obligations arise both where you directly obtain the information and when you indirectly obtain the information. And there are you know, very typical European legislative rules around it being, you know, concise, transparent, intelligible language, plain English, easily accessible. So, you know, you need to think about how you are going to communicate all of this information to employees. A couple of other topics just to bear in mind, they may not be relevant to everyone in the room, but again, they can be relevant in the context of HR. 
um, processing international data transfers. So if you are part of a large group and some of the employment information and the employee information goes to HQ outside the EEA, then you need to be thinking about how you manage those international data transfers. Do you need to appoint a data protection officer? And then there are some very specific rules and requirements around that. Is any of the processing that you undertake in connection with HR likely to result in high risk to the individuals? And if it is, do you need to do a privacy impact assessment? And that needs to be a pre-processing impact assessment. Now for existing processing, sort of the guidance is that you should look at what you're doing and do an impact assessment. But for new processing activities, potentially new technologies, when you're rolling those out, if they're likely to result in high risk, you should be doing that impact assessment in advance. Mandatory breach notifications, which is new under GDPR. Um, at the moment, we have a code of practice. And then how does this all feed into your policies and procedures? And do you have policies and procedures around all of these? And how can you manage them all? Where you do use processors, so if you have outsourced payroll, for example, um, you need to look at all of your contracts where you have a third party processing personal data. GDPR sets out some very specific contractual obligations that you need to feed into those contracts. You need to make sure that if your processor is using a subprocessor, that that all flows down the chain. Um, and there's much more emphasis under GDPR on both processors and controllers having records of their processing activities. So again, going back to the demonstrable compliance principle, you know, can you demonstrate to uh, the Data Protection Commission, as it will become, um, that you are in compliance with all of these requirements? The other thing just to bear in mind, and it's, it's a sort of a broader issue, is if you do use processors, what's the liability uh, position and, and the liability split between controllers and processors and how do you manage that? And then I suppose, you know, the real meat in some respects of GDPR is, you know, these expanded, clarified and new rights in uh, for individuals. So, you know, GDPR really does kind of take the individual and put the individual right at the centre of the whole regime around data protection. And there's a whole list of rights that individuals have. Now, what I will say is that None of these is absolute. There are conditions associated with some of them and there is the potential for derogations. And in fact, the Irish Bill does go into some derogations in relation to, to these rights. But you need to be aware of them all. You need to inform your employees that they have these rights. So you need to have processes and procedures in relation to how you manage them. And then just uh, one more thing to, to point out. The GDPR is directly effective. So it's, it's, it's a European regulation. It becomes part of Irish law on the 25th of May. That notwithstanding, and the fact, you know, and notwithstanding that it was intended to harmonise data protection law throughout Europe, there are a lot of provisions. There are over 50 provisions where member states have some degree of flexibility or some degree of option under GDPR. So you need to, to kind of bear in mind that there will be those member state idiosyncrasies. So GDPR provides that processing of special category data will be lawful in connection with, as I said, rights and obligations under employment law. The Irish Bill makes reference to that, but also makes reference to the fact that it is subject to there being suitable and specific measures in place to protect the data. Again, we kind of have kicked a touch in the bill a little bit because it doesn't set out what those suitable and specific measures are in connection with employment. It does set out a list of what suitable and specific measures may look like. And some of those are quite granular. They get down to the level of detail of saying things like access rights on systems. So it's just it's something to watch. This is an area that is going to evolve over time. And it's just, you know, at this point, everybody is, is, is working on a best efforts basis. There's still guidance that's required under GDPR and we still have a lot of regulation, I think, nationally that will flow through. But again, it, it's an evolving area and it, this is not a get to 25 May and we can all we can take a mini sigh of relief. But I think it, it's, it's going to become part of your compliance culture going forward. Other things just, you know, and I kind of picked out some very employment specific provisions in the bill. The existing prohibition on forced access requests in connection with employment is going to continue. And then the restrictions on rights. There's a provision in there that allows the regulation to restrict all of those individual rights where it's necessary to protect health, safety, dignity and well-being at work. So to protect people against risks in connection with employment. So you may find that some employee rights are slightly curtailed in order to, in fact, protect those employees in connection with work. So as I said, it's, it's an evolving area and, and something to watch. We, you know, very principles based, which is the whole approach under GDPR, but there will be more specific rules coming down the track over time. And then finally, I think, one of the reasons that this is getting as much attention as it is, is, is the, the, the broad range of potential impacts if you don't get it right. 
So that they're kind of threefold. There are administrative sanctions and, and they're the real headline ones. It's it's maximum fines of up to 20 million or 4% of global turnover, depending on the breach. Lots of factors to be taken into account, so it's not strict liability. But, you know, the whole idea of this sanctions regime is that it would be effective, proportionate and dissuasive. So depending on how egregious a breach is, you can anticipate that there may be some substantial fines which come into play. But equally interesting and probably is something that hasn't gotten quite as much attention is the fact that individuals now have a right to compensation for both material and non-material breach of their rights. So currently under Irish law, unless you have suffered financial loss, you are not entitled as an individual to recover damages. But that is going to change post 25th of May. And that's something that's, I think, very important in the context of, of HR in particular. So if there's any kind of breach or any kind of data security incident, you could actually face paying compensation to individuals in relation to distress that they suffer as a result of that. And I think Niall and I were discussing earlier that, you know, everybody is much more aware of their rights at this stage, not just because, you know, there's been a lot of publicity, including, I believe, cinema ads from the Data Protection Commissioner's office um, around GDPR. But when you think of things like the Equifax breach that happened in the US last year, or came to light last year, if you look at what's happening in the discussions with Cambridge Analytica, it, it is something that is very much I- in the public eye and people are very aware of their rights. And then just to I'd scare you or relieve you, depending on your depending on where you are in your projects, um, 45 days to go, inclusive of the 25th of May for the pedants out there like myself. So, um, you know, it, it's it's a brief enough period of time to, to get a considerable amount of work done. Um, but, you know, we'll get there. And as I said, it generally accepted that there is not going to be an organisation on the planet that is 100% compliant by the 25th of May. It's really going to be viewed on a best efforts basis. So it's very important that you've started, that you have a project in place and that you know where you're going with all of this. Thanks a million, Amory. That's uh, th- that's really useful overview. So, Russell, what does the GDPR mean for me as an employer and for my employees? Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, as Amory mentioned, uh, the GDPR puts personal data protection front and centre as a fundamental right of an individual, uh, and for the purpose of today, uh, an employee. In terms of its complexity and the obligations that it imposes, both in terms of the volume and the nature of those obligations on organisations such as employers who collect and process data, it's arguably the most significant legal development that we have seen in the workplace for, for a generation. In terms of employees, and as Amri has mentioned, the GDPR provides enhanced and new uh, rights for employees. So, for instance, the right to be forgotten, which is essentially a right that an employee has to ask the employer to erase data relating to them. There's the right of rectification, which allows an employee to ask an employer to correct deficiencies or inaccuracies in the data that's held about them. There's the right to object as well to processing. So that might arise where an employee withdraws their consent to the processing of the data and there's no other legitimate ground for that processing. And then there's a new right of data portability as well. And that relates to uh, the ability of an employee to take with them the data that they have from one organisation to another As Anne-Marie mentioned, one of the more significant points really that uh, I think we can mention from an employment perspective is the fact that an employee can now seek what's called non-material damage for distress that they suffer where there is a privacy breach. And again, as Anne-Marie mentioned, that is where they can get that compensation and they don't have to show that they've suffered any financial loss. So it really is a novel concept um, under Irish employment law and indeed Irish law. So in addition to all of those enhanced rights and new rights, What's of most significant for employers is the fact that there is now this emphasis in the GDPR on the fundamental concepts of accountability and transparency. What that means in essence is that an employer now has to demonstrate compliance with the general data protection principles in the GDPR and also that uh, they comply with the transparency obligations. And if they don't do that, they could face enforcement action from the data protection commissioner or fines or indeed claims from employees. In addition, employers must be transparent and clear with the employees about, amongst other things, the legal basis on which data is processed, the periods for which data is held, and then also the rights of of the employees, so those enhanced and new rights that I mentioned. And all of this means really that for you as HR practitioners and uh, in-house legal counsel, you're going to have an absolutely vital role in ensuring that your organisations rethink how and why you manage and deal with employee data and you'll also of course play a very important role in the ongoing compliance framework that exists within your organisation 
whether that's through the use of employment documentation, which we'll talk about in a bit more detail, um, or otherwise. I think as well, um, one of the other points um, is that it is very likely to be the case that those new rights that, that we'll talk about will become a common feature of the employment landscape, whether as part of employee relations issues or in employment claims. And we were having a discussion in preparation for the session. And one of the questions that was thrown out there was, is you know, the anticipated deluge that people see um, of claims under the GDPR going to be yet another Y2K bug and that it won't happen? And I think bringing that closer to home, when the whistleblowing legislation came in in 2014, the Protected Disclosure Act, a lot of people thought that there would just be, again, a deluge of claims because of the nature of the rights that were afforded to employees under that legislation. But the deluge never came, or at least it only came as a bit of a trickle in 2016. But I think we're of the general view and the general consensus is that with the GDPR, there will be claims. Um, the extent to which that happens, we'll have to wait and see. But it will be the case that employees will be looking to enforce their rights and seek redress um, a lot more than has happened, let's say, with the whistleblowing legislation. Thanks very much, Russell. So what should an employer be doing to prepare for, for GDPR um, in, in light of the scary slide that's, uh, <laughs> that, that remains there? I think that the most important thing really, and I'm sure it's something that most, if not all of you are already doing and perhaps have already done, is to carry out a privacy or a data protection audit to identify gaps in both the obligations that you have under the current regime, the Data Protection Acts, and what you will be required to do after the 25th of May. I think in particular, you should be reviewing um, your processes and your procedures around employee data. You should look to understand how you manage that information and whether, in fact, you need all of the information that you possess. You should also understand the basis upon which you're able to justify your possession of the information. And in particular, you really need to focus on the employment documentation, which, again, we'll talk about in just a bit in more detail. But you need to make sure that the employment documentation is absolutely compliant with the transparency obligations. Um, so the exercise that you should be undertaking is really in relation to pretty much all aspects of the employment relationship from recruitment determination. So for instance, if you're running a recruitment process, you're obviously going to be asking your job applicants questions and you need to have a think about why you're asking those questions. What information are you trying to um, elicit from those people? And then also, when you get that information from them, what's going to happen with that information? Are they aware of what you're going to do with it, how you're going to retain it and store it? Um, the other thing you need to think about as well is, is it necessary and appropriate to transfer the information that you get from that recruitment process uh, to a successful applicant's personnel file? So really, is it relevant to the ongoing employment relationship? If it's not, then don't stick it on your personnel file. Lastly, the, the other thing you need to think about is how you store the data. Do you have systems in place that are robust enough and sufficient enough to ensure that you safeguard the data that you store? And Anne-Marie, do you have anything to add on, on your side? For example, um, what employers should consider in relation to international transfer? Yeah, sure. I'm going to mention that it, it briefly in passing. And, and it is something that we're seeing, you know, coming up a lot for employers, and um, particularly, you know, members of a large group, but, but not just members of large groups. It, it's, you know, if you do use a service provider or... Um, even if, if you're using cloud hosting for some of this information, you know, you may have potential international data transfer issues. Fundamental principle is you are not allowed to transfer data from the EU to a non-EEA country unless you have one of a number of safeguards in place or you fall um, under one of a limited number of derogations. In an employment context, those derogations are going to be a very limited application. So what we're really talking about here is making sure that you have standard contractual clauses in place, or if you're part of a group that you've binding corporate rules in place, you might be able to rely on the EU-US privacy shield if, if you're transferring to a US entity and it is self-certified under that. Part of what you need to think about is actually, are you transferring that information to that organization as a controller or as a processor? Because that will dictate how you do this and which safeguard mechanism you use. Bear in mind, if you're transferring to a processor, you also need to make sure that those processing obligations that I mentioned in terms of contractual obligations are also encapsulated in, into the contract. And then again, going back to the comments that Russell was making in relation to transparency and employees understanding what's being done, it's part of what you need to tell employees. If, if there is a transfer internationally, they need to know about it and they need to understand why it's happening. So I, th I think, you know, a couple of different pieces there that people might not necessarily think about in a HR context. Absolutely. Um, and Russell, you mentioned the issue about retention of data. 
How long am I, as an, as an employer, permitted to retain employment-related data for the purposes of, of GDPR? So even though the GDPR requires employers to be very clear and transparent about retention periods, it doesn't actually define uh, how long um, or whether there are retention periods that have to be applied to, to data of any kind. The requirement is that personal data may only be kept in a form which allows you to identify an individual for absolutely no longer than is absolutely necessary for the purpose of the processing. So in terms of how you, you hold on to data, you should only hold on to it for no longer than you actually need it for. Um, in terms of the periods for which you hold data, the things that you need to be thinking about are, first of all, the statutory retention periods that will exist in certain employment legislation. I'll talk a, a bit more about that in, in just a, a moment. You've also got to think about time limitation periods for claims. So, for instance, if you've got a breach of contract claim, somebody can bring that within six years from the breach. You also, of course, need to think about your own individual business needs and the situations that you have as businesses, whether that be contractual obligations or otherwise. And then, of course, last but not least, you need to think about the data quality principles that, that we've talked about. So don't hold on to the data for any longer period of time than you actually have to. In terms of the statutory retention periods, of course, you can point to those as a legitimate reason for holding on to the data. Just to give you a few examples, there are a number of different examples, but uh, under the working time legislation, that legislation requires that working time related data is held for three years. The collective redundancy legislation requires that data under that legislation is also held for three years. And then the health and safety legislation requires that accident related information and data is held for, for 10 years. So uh, along with retention of data, you've also mentioned the importance of, of having appropriate documentation and policies in place. Um, so what employment related documentation does an employer need to have in place to deal with GDPR come the, the 25th of May? Yeah, sorry if I sound like a broken record, but it goes back to the obligations of transparency and accountability. And I can't stress how important your empl employment documentation is. Ultimately, the employment documentation that you have will allow you to demonstrate that you are compliant with the general uh, data protection principles and also that you're complying with, of course, your, your transparency obligations. So in terms of that documentation, you're, of course, looking at your contract of employment, you're looking at your data protection policy and you're looking at your privacy statement. So a data protection policy, for fear of in insulting your intelligence, will basically be a, a general, more detailed document that will set out how the employer manages the data that it holds, whether um, that be in respect of employees or customers um, or business contacts. The privacy statement typically is a standalone document. That is the, the document that needs to contain all of the relevant information and enhanced information that the GDPR requires. That'll be more outward facing so that it'll be more for your employees or again for your customers. In terms of the contract, I'm sure that most of you will have in your um, contract a provision which expressly provides that the employee consents to the processing of personal data by signing uh, the contract of employment. And while that's fine, the GDPR really requires you now to review your contract of employment and think about the extent to which it is necessary for you to rely on that consent, um, whether it's appropriate as well to do that. And that also remains true as well for sensitive personal data, which is now called special categories of, of personal data under the GDPR. You do need to give consideration to whether uh, your reliance on consent as a means for holding that is appropriate and, and, and necessary. And the thorny issue of consent is something that, in all honesty, we could sit here and talk about for the duration of this session alone. And thankfully, um, Anne-Marie will talk about that in a bit more detail in just a bit as well. But going back to the privacy statements, they really are of utmost importance and together with the policies, it's very important that they are presented to the employees correctly and also that they contain the information that is required to be put into them. So the privacy statement should, amongst other things, make it very clear about the, the legal basis on which you process the data, whether that be consent, uh, contractual necessity, a legal obligation or, or otherwise. As we've talked about a number of times, the privacy statement also needs to set out the periods for which data needs to be retained. And one of the more striking aspects, I think, of the GDPR is that, as Anne-Marie mentioned in, in the intro, it requires employers to basically inform employees of, of all of their rights. And actually, it goes further. It says that you also need to tell employees about avenues of complaint and redress that they have as well. So you're almost putting on a plate to them what they need to know about bringing a claim. That's what's required, and it's all part of the transparency obligation. So in terms of those rights, we've talked about them before the right to object, the right of rectification, the right to forget, 
and the right of data portability. It is important to note, though, that within the confines of the contract and the policies, those rights, as Anne-Marie said, aren't absolute, so there will be restrictions uh, that can be imposed, and you can refer to those in your, in your documents. The other point, as I said, is that you have to let the employees know of their avenues of complaint. So if your uh, organisation has a DPO, and we'll talk about DPOs as well in just a bit, you have to put the details of the DPO into the, the, the relevant policy or, or statement. Um, you also have to put details of how the person can make a complaint to the Data Protection Commissioner in there as well. In terms of your data protection policy, again, the data protection policy can contain quite a bit of that information that I've just mentioned, so including the rights of the employees. Um, You should also as well put in their obligations, which apply to employees who handle data, whether that be HR uh, professionals such as yourselves or any other employees who handle customer or, or business contact data. I think it would also be prudent as well to, within your data protection policy, set out some details relating to subject access requests and the procedures that an employee has to follow in relation to those. And that should include as well some sort of accountability or authentication procedure where you'll essentially get the employee to to verify their identity before you go off and and process a data access request because it can be the case, and it has happened, where an access request has come in and actually it's been processed in respect of the wrong employee, would you believe? Thanks very much, Russell. Uh, You mentioned the thorny issue of consent. So, uh, Anne-Marie, perhaps you can uh, elaborate what the, the proposed change is in relation to consent and how that will impact on the employer-employee sure. relationship. I, I think consent is obviously one of the lawful processing grounds for both non-special category and special category personal data. I think it's important to realise in relation to those lawful processing grounds that it's not a question of picking one, it's a question of identifying the most appropriate one for each of your processing activities. So consent is not some great panacea that means if you get consent, you can do whatever it is that the individual has consented to. Because, and GDPR makes it very clear, it it now contains a definition of consent. So it has to be freely given, specific and informed, which means it has to be in clear language. It has to be an unambiguous indication of the wishes of the data subject by statement or other affirmative action. You can't bundle consent. So if you are relying on consent, you need a specific consent for each processing activity. You can't make it a condition of a contract where it's not necessary for the contract. And it has to be capable of being withdrawn. It has to be as easy to withdraw your consent as it is to give your consent. So if you take that in an employment context, you you don't necessarily want to be in a position where you're relying on consent and an employee can withdraw that consent. And in fact, you shouldn't have to, for the most part, rely on consent because you should be able to rely on contractual necessity in, in the context of the employment contract legal obligation in the context of, of, of some of the legislation that, that Russell mentioned, you know, that the, as an employer, you have a whole raft of legal obligations under legislation. Legitimate interest in some instances will also be a relevant processing ground. But it goes back again to the whole idea of transparency and demonstrable compliance and understanding what it is you have, why you're processing it and the lawful basis of each of those processing activities. The Article 29 Working Party, which is, for those of you who are not familiar with it, made up of representatives of all of the uh, data protection supervisory authorities throughout Europe. It's going to morph into the European Data Protection Board under GDPR, has issued guidelines in relation to consent under GDPR. And there's some sort of interesting comments in there in relation to establishing your lawful processing basis at the outset and before you start processing. And if you choose a lawful processing basis, you're in effect not really allowed to switch. So it's misleading to say you're relying on consent if in fact you're relying on contractual necessity or misleading to rely on consent if in fact you're going to rely on legitimate interest. So you really need to think about are there in fact in an employment context any specific purposes or uses of, of employee data where you do need consent? And there may not be. There may, there may be depending on, you know, kind of additional services or additional um, things that you offer to your employees. But for the core fundamental employment contract and employment relationship, you may not need to rely on consent. I think a couple of other points just to bear in mind. GDPR in one of the recitals talks about consent not being appropriate where there's an imbalance of power. And again, the Article 29 Working Party has indicated that in an employer-employee context, there's very often an imbalance of power. Can the employee genuinely say, no, I don't want to do this or I don't want to agree to this? Um, and, and as I said, I think, you know, just take a step back and think, you know, what other lawful processing ground can I rely on? And, and what's the most appropriate one for the particular activity that I'm doing? Thanks, Anne-Marie. Um, and then in terms of these new, or well, I say new, the, the, the new classification of 
what we understand to be sensitive personal data, special categories of, of personal data. How is that dealt with? Um, with well, the uh, I think, you know, explicit consent is obviously one of those grounds, uh, on, on lawful processing grounds. But I think the, the, the more likely one and, and the one that should be focused on really is, you know, the, the you know, obligations and specific rights. So if, if you're exercising specific rights in the field of employment law. So again, it goes back to the, the idea of data minimization. It goes back to the idea of the data quality principles. Do you actually need this special category data? And if you do actually need it, you should really be able to, to ground that in employment law rather than necessarily having to rely on explicit consent. But there may be circumstances where you need explicit consent. And if there are, you then need to think about, well, how do we get that in a clear way? How do we manage that process? And how ultimately can we demonstrate that we've gotten that explicit consent? Thanks. Um, and Russell, on, on a broader level, certainly the, the sort of issues that, that come across our desk certainly relate to broader issues of privacy and privacy in the workplace. So from an employer's perspective, are my, are my employees entitled to privacy in, in the workplace? And can I monitor employee behaviour in order to protect my business? And to what extent does GDPR impinge on that? Yeah, employees have, of course, an entitlement to privacy in the workplace, but equally an employer is fully entitled to, to monitor their IT systems. It's their property, provided, of course, they do that appropriately and in accordance with their obligations under the GDPR. Many employers will have contractual provisions or policies which set out that entitlement that they have to monitor their systems and that includes email and, and internet usage and you know there could be lots of valid reasons why they are entitled to do that whether it's to you know prevent uh, the breach of confidentiality or to, to, to stop employees from you know bullying or harassing colleagues. Uh, GDPR does not mean that these policies are no longer valid what it means is that you need to look at the policies and review them to ensure that they comply with the, the transparency requirements of, of the GDPR. So just to explain that in, in a bit more detail, what you need to be clear about in these provisions and policies is the basis on which you are carrying out the monitoring. So is it to protect and safeguard the, the safety of your staff? Um, is it for use within disciplinary proceedings? If so, then, then state that. It's also important as well that the employees know that the systems will be monitored and the reasons for that as well. So it, it kind of really all comes down to ensuring that you don't go beyond the legitimate and reasonable purpose that you have for the, for the monitoring. So as I said, if that relates to safeguarding the health and, and safety of employees, that's an entirely legitimate reason for, for carrying out the monitoring. But what you need to do is balance that right, your right um, as the employer, against the right of the individual who you are monitoring. And uh, Anne-Marie, do you have anything to add from a data protection? Yeah, I, I think the important thing to note here is that the most likely lawful processing ground you're relying on for monitoring is legitimate interest of the employer. That links to a right to object. So any time you process based on a legitimate interest, the individual or employee in this case has a right to object to that processing. And you have to stop the processing unless you've got countervailing, compelling legitimate interests. So it doesn't mean that you can't do it. It just means that you need to be measured in how you approach monitoring. And you really need to think about how extensive it needs to be and whether the extent of the monitoring really sort of justifies the, the aim that you're seeking to achieve. And you, you mentioned towards the stars data protection officers. Mm, yeah. um, so as an employer, do I need to appoint a data protection officer? And if so, who should that person be? You don't necessarily need to appoint one. There are three circumstances where it's mandatory to appoint a data protection officer. So if you're a public authority or public body, unfortunately, you have to do it. If your core activities require regular and systematic monitoring of individuals on a large scale, then you're going to have to do it. Or if your core activities involve processing of special purpose or criminal conviction data on a large scale. So things to focus on there are, you know, you might do some monitoring, but is it a core activity and is it on a large scale? Or you may have some special category data, but again, are you processing that as a core activity and on a large scale? Hard to see in the normal course that employment processing is going to fall within those categories. So it's more likely to be the business focus of an organization that results in them requiring a DPO. If you don't have to appoint one, you can appoint one. But just bear in mind that if you do appoint a DPO, all of the rights and obligations under GDPR will attach to that DPO. So you need to think about whether that's something that you want to do. The role is advisory. So it's advising into the highest level of management in relation to compliance with GDPR. And, you know, you can't issue instructions to the DPO as to how they do their job. So it, it is very much sort of an independent role. Just to add to that, sorry, on the employment side, a DPO can be part time. A DPO can be an existing employee within your organisation, provided 
there is no conflict with the existing role that the employee performs. Alternatively, if you want to contract with the DPO and, and contract with them externally, you can do that as well. So either way, a DPO can be whoever you want, provided, of course, the DPO who is appointed is able to carry out the requisite duties and responsibilities under the GDPR. And also they do so in an independent manner. It's also worth noting as well that um, a DPO cannot be made personally liable under the GDPR for breaches of the GDPR. And also they can't be dismissed where the dismissal is directly attributable to them carrying out their tasks and responsibilities. That doesn't mean they're bulletproof. You can, of course, dismiss a DPO for the, the, the normal grounds that you would normally use. But for instance, if a DPO is doing their job very well and flagging all sorts of compliance issues and risks, you can't just turn around and say, look, enough of that, you're gone. So where the dismissal is directly as a result of them doing their job, basically, you can't get rid of them. One other thing that we were talking about on the employment side, Niall and I in particular, were, is around the fact that a DPO, by the very nature of the intrinsic functions that they carry out, will be required to flag risks, will be required to flag compliance breaches and issues. But because of that, they cannot come within the remit of the Protected Disclosure Act, the whistleblowing legislation, because that legislation is explicit about the fact that people who perform those types of compliance roles cannot make protected disclosures in relation to the issues that they identify in the ordinary course of, of their job. Where that's different, of course, is where you have employees within your organization who don't fulfill that sort of compliance role to the extent that they raise issues or identify breaches, privacy breaches or whatever, then theoretically they are raising or uh, producing protected disclosures and they could come within the remit of the whistleblowing legislation. So it's something to bear in mind. And speaking from the perspective of an employment lawyer who acts for employers, subject access requests are the bane of our, our lives at, at the moment. Is that going to get worse? And what's new in, in relation to subject access requests and also now mandatory breach notifications? Yeah, that pain in the neck that we all have to suffer through is going to uh, remain under the G GDPR. Unfortunately, there are some important changes as well that I want to bring to your attention. So first of all, currently the employer has 40 days to comply with the that access or subject access request. That's been reduced to 30 days. So really when you get in an access request, you have to move straight away. There's, there's no room really for, for delay on it. There is provision within the GDPR for that 30 days to be extended by up to two months. So a, a 90 day period in total. That's where the uh, request is particularly excessive or there's a number of different requests or repetitive requests made at the same time. It does remain to be seen how the entitlement of an employer to look to, to extend um, is actually used in practice. Uh, but I think in my experience anyway, um, a lot of access requests are complex. So it hopefully will afford um, employers an opportunity to use that extension to give themselves a bit of respite. Just quickly in relation to the other points that you should note, um, the GDPR also requires that additional information is provided when you respond to subject access requests. So that includes, amongst other things, the purpose of the processing, the categories of data that you hold, and then also you need to confirm who has received the data and who will receive the data as well. Under the Data Protection Acts, a data controller can refuse to grant an access request where, amongst other things, it's vexatious. There is something similar under the GDPR, so a, a controller or an employer, in our case, can refuse an access request where it's manifestly unfounded, excessive or repetitive. Again, it remains to be seen how that exception can be invoked by employers in practice, but it's unlikely to provide more flexibility, uh, we reckon, than, than exists under the current uh, regime. Lastly, an employee is not obliged to pay the €6.35, and while that might seem inconsequential, the Data Protection Commissioner seems to believe, and in fairness to her, I'm sure she's right, that this will actually mean that there will be a lot more uh, subject access requests. You'll be delighted to hear. An employer is entitled to charge what's called a reasonable fee within the GDPR, where a, a request is, again, manifestly unfounded, excessive or repetitive. We were trying to figure out why an employer would just charge a fee where those situations exist in circumstances where they can just refuse to, to grant the access request for those same reasons. But that's what the legislation says. The legislation, unfortunately, um, so that's the GDPR and the draft bill, do not define uh, what a reasonable fee is. So we just have to wait for case law to iron out the interpretation of that particular term. And uh, Anne-Marie, in relation to subject access requests, our approach to date really 
is when one is received that it's open to the employer to, to write back and seek to narrow the scope of the request. Will this approach still be permitted under the GDPR? I, I from a practical perspective, think absolutely employers should be taking that approach because, you know, you, you can always seek to agree to curtail the extent of the searching that you have to do. And that's really what, what this comes down to. I mean, you, you could argue that the, you know, if somebody is being particularly intransigent, that their request is excessive if they're asking you to go and search all sorts of systems and, you know, all of your unstructured email, as opposed to allowing you to limit it to the most likely data custodians in, in relation to personal data. Important to remember, though, that data access requests are fundamentally not discovery orders. So you don't have to produce every single piece of paper that mentions the individual. And also, if you go back to the definition of personal data, is all of this relating to the individual? So the fact that somebody's name is on an email doesn't necessarily mean that that relates to them. It really goes back to how intrinsic is the information to that individual and does it really, you know, kind of relate to them in, in, in a kind of a data protection sense. I also think, bear in mind that there are going to be further derogations under the bill. So we are effectively reenacting some of the derogations that we have under the existing legislation. So things like expressions of opinion that are given in circumstances of confidence, you may be able to withhold those. Is the information, would it be prejudicial to a legal claim? Is, is the information necessary for assessing the liability of the data controller? Is it privileged information? And it's one of the reasons that access requests become so complex sometimes is, is that analysis around the information and, and making a call as to whether it is information that you have to hand over. You may be quite comfortable handing some of it over, but it, it really goes back to that. So I think fundamentally, I think it's a very sensible approach to try and agree some parameters around the searching that is going to be undertaken um, in, on a data access request. And mandatory breach notifications? Yeah, I mentioned this earlier. This is new. So at the moment, we have a code of practice, which people are encouraged to comply with in terms of reporting to the Data Protection Commissioner. Under GDPR, you are going to have to report data security incidents and data breaches within 72 hours of becoming aware of them, unless they're unlikely to result in risk to individuals. So relatively low bar in terms of going to the Data Protection Commission. You may also have to notify the individuals that are affected where the breach is likely to result in high risk to them. So what it means is that you need to have a very clear process and procedure in place for assessing any data incidents or data breach incidents and making sure that the appropriate people are making a call as to whether there's unlikely to be any risk or whether there's likely to be high risk and to act accordingly and to make sure that you notify within the, the, the requisite periods. If you don't notify within 72 hours, you're going to have to justify yourself to the Data Protection Commission. And there is provision, you know, you're not going to have all of the information within 72 hours. So there is provision for, you know, just notifying that there's been a breach, but following up with the more detailed information in relation to the breach as and when you get that. But it's a bit of a shift. I think, you know, a lot of our clients who operate in a regulated space will already do, you know, they'll comply with the code because there are other regulators will expect them to comply with the code. But I think in a more broad sense, this is a bit of a shift for people. And just to further terrify um, us, the, the potential liabilities that now exist for employers in relation to data protection. Yeah, breaches. as I mentioned, it's that sort of three levels. There's the uh, admin sanctions regime. Some of the factors that will be taken into account there are things like, you know, was it a negligent or intentional breach? How egregious was the breach? How many people were affected? What did you do to try and mitigate damage once you became aware of the breach? How open and transparent have you been with the Data Protection Commission? So th there's a lot of different factors that will come into play there. You also have the, the, the claims, the potential for individual claims that we talked about. And, you know, when you think about the obligation to notify individuals where there's likely to be a high risk to them, if there's been a breach, you're straight into having to deal with the potential for those kinds of claims because, you know, if there's likely to be high risk, there's likely to be distress. And then, you know, a couple of criminal sanctions that may arise under the, the Irish bill in certain specific circumstances. So that there's that kind of triple layer. OK, that's... Um Scary stuff, I guess, but, um, <laughs> but hopefully I, I think it remains to be seen uh, over time what, what that actually will involve in practice and certainly in relation to sort of claims of non-material loss. There is a hopefully a sort of an analogous position in, in relation to sort of working time breaches that, that there is a provision for dissuading employers from, from breaching those obligations, but the fines themselves are relatively mi minor in nature. So it remains to be seen if, if that a similar type approach is, is taken in relation to technical breaches of the obligations that the, the actual impact on people is relatively minor. 
but again, that this will only really be teased out over time. We've spoken a lot about GDPR, which is obviously the, the regulation, which is directly effective. But what should we be aware of in relation to the, the Data Protection Bill? Okay, I, I think I've mentioned this, sort of some of the very specific references to employment in the Data Protection Bill, so things like forced access requests, special purpose processing. I think it, it, it's to be aware of the fact that there is the potential for further regulation and the potential for further regulation specifically in the context of employment data and HR functions. So it really is to, to kind of keep an eye on that. Um, also bear in mind that you know there are going to be derogations under the bill that may assist in terms of managing some of those data subject rights and, and requests in relation to data subject rights. And, and, you know, possibly not a helpful thing to end on, but just it is an evolving area. So it, it is really a matter and it, it is very much kind of an ongoing compliance issue for everybody. It needs to become part of your compliance culture. So it is just to keep track of it and, and to review on a regular basis and make sure that the management and the appropriate management levels are reviewing on a regular basis. Thanks, Amory. To sum things up, from the perspective of an employment lawyer, our interaction really with, with data protection to date has largely been around policies, putting the policies in place, and then dealing with subject access requests and aspects like that. It certainly seems to be from GDPR or the, the implementation of GDPR that those two aspects are really going to be ramped up in terms of what the expectations are, in terms of what the ramifications are going to be for people in HR and dealing with these issues. And bolted onto that is the transparency aspect, where you're essentially putting it on a plate for an employee to, to demonstrate this is exactly how you can bring a claim against us. And it remains to be seen whether that in turn will, will result in a, in a deluge of claims or it will simply just become, as, as Anne-Marie has mentioned, part of compliance culture. And so that would be the norm and then it will steady down into where it stands. Thank you all for your attention and thank you to Anne-Marie and to Russell for their insight um, on this area. I hope you found it useful. And if you've got any, any queries or anything like that, just let us know. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.